This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses. This is from the Book of Causation, from the Kachana. It's quite a renowned um, sutta. This is at Savati, the Venerable Kachana Gota approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. One who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. Of one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kachan, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging, the mental standpoint, the adherence, the underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising, what ceases is only suffering ceases. His knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, that there is right view. All exists. Kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be with volitional formations as condition, consciousness, and so on. This is the sequence of the dependent origination. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering, but with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, the cessation of consciousness such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So, this is um, this one the, called the is about the middle, Dhamma in the middle, and this was the seemed to be the origin of of all the um, Majjhimika, which was a kind of whole philosoph- philosophical trend that arose by a very renowned and skilled um, logician called Nagarjuna who then developed um, an explanation of this uh, particular view, right view as a refutation of various erroneous views that have arisen about the existence of things called Dhammas so, but actually the whole thing is based upon this particular very cryptic um, presentation. So essentially you have these various points that are made. There's the gen- general state of, uh, of uh, sangsaric view is that there's you know, has the tendency to, to, towards existence and towards non-existence. This is, uh, say, or eternalism annihilation sometimes talked about in that way. Um, So this is that in us which inclines towards uh, establishing permanence and that in us which inclines towards in not getting out, uh, avo- avoiding things, um, and it's, it's so these tendencies that we can see that which wants a happy home, 
the novice wants to escape from from uh, life, from the impingement of life. Pretty normal um, conditioning, and we probably oscillate dependent upon which way the wind's blowing. Um, and these can kind of escalate into uh, uh, various uh, views or, or deep persuasions of heart. One is the world is a waste of time. It's a place of, of uh, uh, treachery and pointlessness and, dis- and so forth. Let's get out of it. And the other is, say, you know, the world is a place of promise and openness and love and sharing and let's try to make it work. And from that also you can develop various kinds of views about well um, in terms of practice well maybe you know the aim is to is to develop and uh, find the uh, eternal consciousness you know the true light within um, the, that sort of eternalism which then persists forever or maybe the idea is the non-existence you know, just snuff out the candle <laughs> altogether. <laughs> going to cessation. So even in, in uh, as I think I've mentioned before, even in Buddhist uh, schools you get these kind of tendencies, people who will incline more towards the idea of there being a deathless, unconditioned, um, you know, which there are certain scriptures that seem to give, you know, provide you ground for that, you know, the, the, the be the eternal knowing or something of that nature. And there are various other people who incline towards look, this is just Everything is just uh, just blind phenomena. All we're looking for is the stopping of this whole lot. You know, you know nibbana extinction. You know that kind of. So there's the nibbana extinction persuasion and the and the deathless, eternalist persuasion. And you know you can find scriptures and practices that will back up either of those. Um, it's partly the way that language works, really. So the whole linguistic structures tend to work in terms of things either being present or things being absent. So in language, you can't really get around it. Um, so how people define their experience and how you know you, you hear their experience and how that you read that is is all something just to acknowledge. You know that which inspires us can give us an idea of where our you know, maybe our persuasion is. We feel comfortable with the idea of, uh, of uh, you know, being in some sort of amorphous realm of, of light and truth and compassion. Or whether we'd like to just just stop and <laughs> not be here, not be anywhere. <laughs> you know, that, maybe that sounds, oh, that sounds nice, you know, relief. <laughs> uh, but actually, the, the if it was either of these, really, then I'm sure the Buddha would have said, this is it, you know. But the fact that the ling- language structures the Buddha used sometimes seem to give you room to think in terms of, of, a, of a kind of um, you know, eternal, unconditioned state somehow. You know, and sometimes the language seems to give you the idea of it's just about stopping, die, out, no more of this, enough, you know, and, and uh, so the Buddha seemed to use language structures that you could read, could read either of those, could be read into it, um, but it seems to point out that the experience is actually ineffable, uh, and um, the problem is really language and perception and thinking and all that which we have to use. But he's saying here, you know, when you, you contemplate those persuasions, those inclinations, and then you can challenge them. And the Buddha is saying, you know, I teach a middle way, which is somewhere between these two persuasions. That is that, um, you know, we can talk with it, that that which arises or persists or is, can be said to exist is, is itself is an unsatisfactory uh, or experience, and uh, that's challenged by the fact that things do stop. You know the happiness that comes up for us, 
you know, which is say the positive, more of this, let's hang on, let's make this last a bit longer, this is the good place and so forth, <coughs> that is challenged by the fact, well, yeah, but it does break up. Yeah, well, yeah, of course it does, but it's nice now. You know. Or <laughs> you know, it, does, it does end. So, you know, okay. So that in us which inclines that way has to, you know, towards the, the um, positive side of it is challenged by the sense of well you know things things do end things do stop and that thus which inclines towards saying well it's all stopped you know what we're looking for is the end of everything uh, say well things do happen you know you have been born um, <laughs> you know you are in it we are somehow in an experience where we're supported by air and breath and life and food and generosity and kindness there are things that do arise that, that we have to acknowledge uh, and the path itself is about giving rise to things so yes there is an arising and arising is a vital necessary part of this and ceasing is a vital necessary part of this so whichever one you're missing out on, on re- recognizing that's what you have to remember it kind of keeps as you nudge over, as you go to one direction, you kind of nudge back. As you go to the other direction, you nudge back, and you end up kind of oscillating in this middle ground, which is the the middle way, uh, the Madhyamika. Uh, in which things are seen as they are. We said with correct wisdom, things are seen, or right view. And this scene is this uh, matrix of experience, dependent origination. That which can be talked about as being um, experienceable, knowable, witnessable, uh, handleable, uh, something we can practice with. So dependent origination doesn't really talk about, say, an unconditioned reality. It talks about the structure of conditional reality that is there to be reviewed, handled, worked with, and the tangle of it is to be unwoven. And then, you know, then we go, well, then what? Well, that's up to you to experience. You you can call it, if you, you know, you could do it deathless or nibbana, if you like. But be aware of the, the, uh, you know, making that a view taking a stand upon it. So the, the view we have, the view taking is, seems to be the, the place where this sense of, of myself gets involved with it. You know. as, I've, as I said, you know, that, that view which tends towards looking at the, uh, the cessation or the ending experience is a self-view in it saying, I want, you know, I want out, I'm other than this. I want to be out of this. I want to not exist. You know, I am besieged and beset by these difficult things. I like to get out. Well, that's a self-view. And there's that which is saying, "Oh, this is very po- wonderful opportunities. Uh, you know, beautiful experiences that uh, I need to enrich myself with and actually be unified with." You know, that's a self-view. So we tend to wobble around in that. Mm. Both in terms of Dhamma practice and in terms of of ordinary life. Mm. And the dependent origination, in a way, describes the wobbling. And what we, what, you know, the whole, the wobbling around and what is wobbled around in. But essentially, the wobbling is described in that. It's saying, well, you know, if you undo the wobbling, then the view is undone, the self view is undone, and then, you know, and then. <laughs> you know, so it, it's that kind of crucial thing, and actually dealing with the very taking of views, the oscillation, the inclining to views, the, the attaching 
um, which is approximately in three particular ways in which this occurs, which are actually mapped out in dependent origination. First is avijja, or not seeing it right, seeing it wrongly. Now this is essentially just the very thing which sees in terms of um, self and other. Mm. Now what is experienced actually in any moment is what? You know, various kind of sensory experiences, uh, thought experiences, perceptual experiences, emotional experiences. There's a whole kind of interflowing matrix uh, of just these experiences going on. Some of them we say, oh, that's that's happening in me. That's internal. Some of them we say, oh, it's happening out there. That's external. But actually... You know where where's the boundary, and this is where it gets very interesting, uh, where the boundary is. Um, so nominally, it will be between the external senses, you know, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the internal sense, the mind. But that's not exactly a clear boundary because we do recognise, you know, where when you see something, the interest in that is is internal. The, the boundary is not exactly not exactly that that uh, sharp. Um, we so we can, we can we pick up um, moods and feelings dependent upon external what seems to be external stimulation. Um, our very what we choose to attend to and even witness and notice depends very much on our, our inclination of mind. You know what the builders saw in this monastery. And what the Thai people bringing dana see in this monastery, and what the Anagarikas see in this monastery, and what I see in this monastery are all different takes, aren't they? You know, do, would we be able to really how how much would those all overlap and provide us with an actual identical picture? So we say, well, the external world is certainly, you know, highly tinted by what what we attend to. Um, and what judgments and what inclinations we have, whether we're interested in gardens, birds, buildings, people, um, moods, atmospheres, uh, and so forth, or, even, or, or, or whether we're interested at all, whether we're a visitor, or guest, or a resident. All those will affect what actually this experience of this monastery as an external reality is. So it is very much dependent on that. And then we can also recognise our apparently internal experience is itself not not seal we can't seal off. We are we are very much affected by um, what we see and hear. Yeah. Other people, how we just even seeing other people, we feel intimidated or welcomed just by the sight of other people. Um, the you know, this natural tendency we have to 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 imagine ourselves or feel ourselves as seen or not seen, liked or not liked by other people, and that happens kind of instinctively. And we can feel bright and spacious, um, you know, it, it dependent upon. Basically, often about things like the nature that we're in, you know, whether it's uh, weather, we feel gloomy because it's no sun. Yeah, yeah. But often, probably more 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 fundamentally, by by the other pe- by other people. So, for the largest uh, significant um, experience of the world is really the world of people. How that's what we're feeling ourselves in relation to. A sense of self, very primarily, is with other people, whether they're actually present, or whether are these strange ghosts that haunt us, called them, <laughs> <laughs> or it, <coughs> who they wouldn't like, or they don't approve, or it, or he, in which I am, of course, the 
Sati, one of the prime um, personifications of it and them. And it often represents powerful constellations of personal experiences of, of um, you know, difficulty of some kind, generally, at least with me. <laughs> <laughs> To help to bring these ghosts out of the court, out of the cupboards for people. Because <laughs> yeah. of being, you know, seen certain with authority, or um, you know, or something like that. Difficult to hold onto these when I when you actually you know I, when I li- live with this one it's, it's kind of <laughs> experience me sort of shuffling down downstairs in my cootie and my carpet slippers <laughs> feeling definitely highly unauthoritative <laughs> unimpressive <laughs> stumbling down in the morning where there's a bathroom thing I could intimidate a spider even. <laughs> But in full battle regalia, then I'm a formidable creature. And also, of course, can inspire a great devotion. And all the so a wrong range of things can occur around these person pe- personal experiences. Now we can get bemused by that, but the, the most uh, the most significant thing to know is just what kind of I am is, is happening at that at that time. The I am, which is often gives us a good why why it's useful to actually be in a human context, in the context of the world, because it tends to highlight the feelings of what inadequacy or need or um, enjoyment or happiness or love or trust or whatever. You know, the things that will actually um, you know where where we are tending to um, constellate around, you know, where we become, our basic latent tendencies become most apparent. So this will probably be with most commonly with people, um, but otherwise it will be in, with situations. You know, and it's not necessarily always the same. So the sense of I am in a group, for many people, will, at least in in, in um, my experience in monasteries, tends to be one of um, I am odd, one out. I'm I'm slightly inadequate. Um, I feel slightly anxious in the group. Yeah. The way this is primarily, this is all across the board for human beings, or whether it's something that particularly is monastic, you know, because monastics are often those whose tendency is to want to get away. Um, you know, you're not a Buddhist monk, certainly not a Buddhist nun, because of your fascination um, and love of being in in, in the world. <laughs> you know, you're pretty driven <laughs> to, to want to do this kind of thing. <laughs> so the experience is often is the world is not a good place. It's not a trustworthy place. It's not no point in it. I'm fed up with it, and then so that that kind of thing. And these are often there are per- personal stories in there. So the, the tendency is, is tends towards that kind of um, you know get out thing, and that that keeps kind of coming up again and again in in various in, in situations. You know, like. Well, uh, you know, like the world, the world monk, you know, has to deal with his enormous <laughs> tendencies of people to not want to take responsibility, not want to get involved, not want to be part of this, you know, you know, not want to be in it, and then, uh, you know, uh, um, those kind of tendencies can can be strong for people. Um, I mean, this is not to say that people don't work with that or work against it very, very well, and and uh, you know, really understand.
understand this and try to practice against it. It's certainly one of the challenges of a, of a community, community life, and I think community life itself is a practice. You know, just plonk 20 people in a, in a situation together, you've got practice already. <laughs> you've got practice, it's there, you know. Just give me an hour and already you've got practice. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't even say anything, you've still got practice. Because we think, well, well, what am I supposed to do here? I don't see the point of this. And someone is really saying, why can't we relate more? Get something going. And you're saying, well, I, you know, I don't really like groups. I just want to be on my own, thanks very much. <laughs> you know, somebody will probably start cracking jokes to pass the time to try and distract <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> Some will want to get it together. Now, come on, gang, let's get organised. <laughs> thing will start to just happen and uh, you know you know these, these are the tendencies to try to make a world or get out of a world or there you know in that very situations it, it's it's cosmic <laughs> oh, this Awija is a thing that doesn't actually really you know, it, it keeps keeps avoiding penetrating that. You know, we we really believe in it, uh, or, or not just believe in it, but we're we're ex- extremely um, caught in that. So much so that sometimes the you know the the emotions just start to freeze up um, in, in that situation. It, it's the power of it can be so strong; people really start to numb out or. You can feel it emotionally quite disturbed by by presence of the world, you know, in, in that sense. And at other times, of course, and I think this is probably more the case for, you know, your conventional lay person, then the, the thing is it's more difficult to be on one's own. You know, you're in solitude being away from things. Oh God, I go nuts, you know. Half an hour with nothing to do. God, it drives me crazy. Uh, and Ritanutaro was saying to one of his friends, his um, old business accom- uh, 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 acquaintances, you know, saying what he did. You know, he's in the forest on retreat, and how much he really enjoyed looking forward to retreat. So I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, we go and I sort of sit there. And he, this chap suddenly recognised the idea of a whole afternoon, a whole afternoon of sitting there with nothing, no telly, no radio, nothing to eat, no books, nothing to do. Gee, uh. <laughs> <laughs> his, his sister just, you know, cramped at the very notion of that. Whereas uh, for Manassi, think, whoa, only an afternoon? What about a month? What about a year? <laughs> what about a lifetime of it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Even though they don't, it, it can fluctuate, you know, he can get into there and after a while start to feel restless and so forth and want something to do again. So it's not as if anybody totally this way, but the basic persuasions can be like, like that. You know, we're looking for something to either bed into, or we're looking to be up, to be out of. You know, when so the awija in the sec the second kind of um, thing that that reinforces that is is the volitional tendencies, the sankharas, which actually get us going. These are things that stir, that are occurring, that stir. So these are, these are, say, uh, things that are continually agitating consciousness. So these desires, fears, worries, um, hopes, plans, opinions, drives, uh, convictions, <coughs> um, doubts. You know the things that can really stu- the turbulences, the sankharas. Some of them are, are obviously, you know, what we call body sankharas, which means you actually. Uh, physically moving around, and some of them are jitta sankharas, which are uh, things that just keep—they're the wellspring upon which thoughts and, and and moods arise. This kind of 
eddying of of emotive energy, you know, the jitta sankara, and then on top of that fountain, these particular discrete concerns and thoughts and topics come cooking up. And that's more or less that's that's the kit that you get born with. And so the consciousness is always, um, you know, occupied and defined around that particular experience for the the in, in the ordinary person. And then that kind of percolates and is expressed in dependent origination in terms of how the sense organs pick that up, how they how they operate in that message, and then. Um, it's continually given, it's like a spinning wheel that's continually given another kick. So as it's spinning, it's kicked and kicked and kicked, so it keeps it spinning faster and faster. And the kick of that is each sense input and then the, the feeling that comes with that, then the, this, the craving or the clinging, the thirst that goes along with that. It goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It gives it another kick. Or it can, of course, be the thirst that's going the other way, kicking the other way. You know, out, out, out. The thirst to get out. So that's all that, the line of that volition, which is this volitional experience that we, we all have. Third aspect of it is called the clinging, upadaya, which is more um, a kind of view, if you like. So volition is very much an energy that happens to us. Upadaya is like an assumption or an energy that wants or that inclines towards holding and having. So if you, you know, simply speaking, when you have, so desire or tanha, craving, is going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. got it, I've got it, I've got it. And it's that which establishes the sense of, of, of permanence through the process called bhava becoming. So upadaya is the very holding of things. So it's, 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 it's a kind of, it's a, it's a, in a way it's, it's, it's will, there is a volition there and it's when it becomes more than just the the uh, ongoing flow of experience, it, it tends to create a kind of an overview of that, which is where the sense of self comes from. That is that the, the very desire or craving is reviewed in terms of, oh, I'm going to get this. I want that. And then we build up what are called upadi, which are little elements of that, such as, you know, I like bananas or I like reading the Sunday Times or you know or various particular kind of discrete um, things that we're attached to and our identity is based upon that so the average person you know I watch this on Sunday I do this on Mondays I like to go to so-and-so for my holidays and I like fish and chips on a Friday you know this is a collection of what, what what they're they're clinging to So these are the three kind of bases of, of the self-view. Um, wrong view or not seeing things clearly. Um, and then thirst and volition. And then uh, clinging and the sense of being something. So these are what are called the... <coughs> this is the, the one when he says... This world is shackled by engagements, clinging, and adherence. It's these, these are the experiences that we're talking about in this way. Various kinds of views, compulsions, um, misapprehensions, assumptions that we haven't really examined. This, this doesn't just hold the self or hold the world it actually is the self 
and is the, is the self or is the world. Remember, the world and the self are really mirror images of each other, or in, they are they are, they, are, they depend upon each other. You know? The world, in a way, is an expression of self in terms of either something we feel we're moving back from or something we feel we want to be move into. Mm-hmm. We can experience ourself as well. Here I am, um, you know. I'm abbot of this monastery in England, and I'm, you know, I actually have a position and a role and a function. I'm in the world, or I experience it as basically I'm a consciousness through which in which these particular experiences happen. I'm, you know, I'm a self, and the world is just purely a kind of series of of illusions or shadows that appear on the screen of my mind. Or I, you know, the other way round, you know, the, this is functioning organism, these, which has these particular notions and thoughts that flicker through it. So that, you know, self and world, if you see what I mean. And sometimes in any of our lives, we may we may take ourselves as that, our role, our function, in in social world. Um, in the world of birth and death, in the world of nature, as a having a physical body. And within that, this is my life, in this world, I am so-and-so, and these are the thoughts and impressions I'm having. Yeah. And there's my dad, and so forth. Yeah. And how am I going to work all this out? And so then if we take that view, then the tendency is, well, how can I make the Dharma fit my life and my world? You know, and if you take that to an extreme, then you start, if you really get strong about that, you think, well, I don't, this bit of dumber doesn't really fit. I'll get, sort of push that one way. This bit does, and we can actually do these sort of tailoring jobs on, on dumber. And people tend to do, can do that. The idea is how to make Buddhism fit into the West. So we cut off the bit about renunciation at the start. <laughs> snip, faith, devotion, snip, snip. You know, <laughs> cosmology and David are snip, snip, snip. <laughs> Hell realms. That's 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 medieval. Chuck that out. You know, what we've got in his life affirm, life affirming. You know, self enhancing psychotherapy. <laughs> you know, I'll have some of that. Make me feel better. <laughs> then I can do do my life as being a more fully realized, happy person in the world. You know, and that's that kind of thing. Uh, we go the other the other way is is you know. Is uh, the world is just an illusion in my mind, and uh, how can I find the right place in the world where I can where I can have the right illusions happening for me? <laughs> you know, so then the thing is, how can I make the world fit the Dhamma? Which means I don't want to be anywhere there's people, I don't want to be anywhere there's work, I don't want to be anywhere where there's traffic, noise, um, anything to think about. Um, well, it's too cold or too hot, where the food isn't right, where I have to, you know. So then you can go the o- other way, and then we, we snip off a bit about compassion. Chick, 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 cut that out. Don't really, you know, compassion is just sort of, you know, sort of social work, snip, snip, cut that out. Then we can snip off a bit about, you know, mendicancy. Well, you know, we don't want to go arms around, waste of time, lay people, snip, 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 chuck that bit off. <laughs> and these things, so you get that extreme where monks even sort of decide they, they'll become samaneras rather than become bhikkhus, so they don't have to kind of, they can just sit in some cave somewhere and not have to cook their own food and not have to go out and meet people. So you get that kind of thing where you chip, snip bits off of the Buddhist teachings so that, you know, the world will fit your, your practice. And that, that kind of, it, that's the way it goes. And it's, it's, it's inevitable and it's um, it's monstrous because yeah. it, it it covers everything this self this self world thing experience from courses to most refined. But actually, you know, in the middle, we say we can recognise well. Right now, there are these tendencies. Right now, there are these views. Right now there is inclinations. Right now there is these resistances. Right now these kind of dreaded, shadowy 
thoughts of what might be, you know, all these dreams of how it could be. And then the Buddha saying, remember, whatever rises, this is just dukkha. <laughs> so he actually, when you get in the, in the middle of it, you know, and you stop this self-world stuff, and say, right now, you know, there are, there are visual impressions, there are thoughts, there are moods, there are incl- inclinations towards, away, there are fears, there are worries, there are joys, there are hopes, there's warmth, and so forth. That's what's happening. Yeah. And you take, take the skin off between self and world. I mean, it's not that easy, it's pretty raw you do that. You see, you know, the, the wanting to be accepted or the wanting to be noticed or the wanting to, to not be noticed or, you know, wanting to do and improve and work things out or something, you know, that whole stuff going on and the, the, lur- the or the feeling behind that you're not going to be able to you know. so then so you're actually in the middle when you take down the boundaries and then it's very useful to have that teaching just remember whatever rises this is this is dukkha whatever ceases stops this is just dukkha now dukkha which is translated here by the single word suffering, which is not, you know, good enough stab at it. Um, is really doesn't imply implies everything that is incomplete, unsatisfactory, not to be held on to, can't take us to a good place. It doesn't mean, you know, it's acutely anguished or miserable. Or even it's something that we shouldn't experience. It's saying in the middle, just notice. The sense of wanting something to happen, that, that means one is not satisfied. The sense of not wanting something to happen, that, that is dukkha. The wishing it was otherwise is dukkha. The wishing other people were otherwise is dukkha. The feeling that you can't make it is dukkha. The expectation that you will make it is dukkha. Because it's always moving some sense of being away from this uncomfortable middle ground where things are arising. And we so want to get away from that middle ground. Where I can be me. And there's a world. Even if it's a horrible world, and I can at least be me and get away from it or try to get away from it. You kind of crystallise, but in this middle ground, you know, you can't, you can't do that. It's just uncomfortable. It's itchy. But then also... But then if one has the practice to, to remain in the middle ground, then those, that non-sense, that wrong sense, we're challenging that, which continually wants to make it into self and other, past and future, somewhere else, something that I am, something that I'm not, we're challenging that. And the volitional tendencies, the want to keep that activating, we're challenging those, so you, in that challenge they will necessarily come up, so you get this kind of all sorts of worries, desires fantasies, hopes uh, dreads uh, sense of inadequacy sense of urgency, things you've got to do, practices, views, opinions you know some of them really very convincing Ooh, busy in here <laughs> and then that whatever you know and then some of them are very convincing and, and very 
top, the topics are really can be quite good. You know, urgent things we need to accomplish, practices we've got to do, realizations we should have, but but just in that middle ground, in terms of that middle ground, right now that is the arising of dukkha. It's the sense of I can't be here as it is. So whatever that arising, that trembling in this ground, this is to be known as this. We see, we contemplate, you know, what is the lack that I'm trying to get away from? What is the sense of, so dukkha appears as lack or loss. What is the hole I'm trying to fill in? What is that I'm trying to plug the sadness with? Or the emptiness with? The lack? What is that? And it's just that. Remember? It's not a self-experiencing dukkha. This just is dukkha, dukkha creating a self. That way round. Lack, loss. Dukkha, so this is um, association with the disliked. Then there's the um, vulnerability of dukkha. You know? Experience of just this stuff continually being peppered with with this stuff, you know. Going on, good, so I want you to all stop, 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 stop. <laughs> you know, that feeling that you know you can't close the door, you know, close the door and it comes in with you. <laughs> Lie down on the pillow and put your head down, it's there. When they come in the morning, there it is, looking you in the face again. <laughs> what are you asleep has been going on? <laughs> I woke, woke up, this, this, this dream of, of nuns shivering in the rain. <laughs> woke up with a sense of dread. <laughs> Even when I was asleep, I was still worrying. <laughs> I woke up, oh God, oh, it's all right, it's only a dream. <laughs> there was something else to worry about. <laughs> You've been sleeping too long, <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> So, you know, that, and then, the, the, so the vulnerability of it, the ability of being, being sensitive, which, you know, one kind of wants and yet doesn't want also. I'd like to be sensitive to the nice things, <laughs> but as long as they didn't pass. And then dukkha is also the sense of impotence. What can you do? Yeah which you can experience in terms of, you know, you read a newspaper and it's a massive drenching of impotence. Um, you know. And then, you, you know, your body, God, this is breaking up. You know, mind states like this. So that sense of, you know, those, so those kind of washes of it coming up in this, in this middle ground. Well, to be recognized, it's just this. And you know, the, the, if there's no grasping at that, and this is what, what can be done in a way, you have the, the wrong view can be, the avijja can be at least challenged as, as an ongoing karmic experience, that is instead of acting upon it. You've still got the vipaka, or the inheritance of that, which has kind of got this inherited um, stuff, you're still, you're still running but you don't have to keep kicking the wheel faster and faster. So that's what we can, we can check. And then the upadaya, the clinging, the grasping to, of that, which is putting it in a case and saying, this is what I am. Then the sense of the things passing this is uh, um, the ending of things that we we uh, rather liked. You know, again, one can come up with that signs one's lost something, uh, something's been taken away. One is powerless to stop things passing, and it dukkha. But, but 
again, so it's good to remember at that time, this is just that. It's actually not a loss of anything intrinsic. Um, the wisdom or the clarity, that which is uh, the right view itself remains. Because phenomena essentially are ungraspable. If they were graspable, we could, we could actually get rid of them, couldn't we? And if they were graspable, we could hold on to them. We can't hold on, we can't get rid of. So they're actually ungraspable. Now if one enters into that and attunes to the ungraspable, this is right view. Attuned to the ungraspable. Take it fuller and fuller. This is what all dhammas are really this. Mm. So I remember it as I was saying during the, the rains retreat, you know, I was meditating and there was some building work going on the, on the stonework on the Dhamma Hall. And then sitting out on the porch as I could hear the sound of the stone saws grinding and screeching as I was meditating. And then what is the difference between this stone saw and the Buddha's voice? Why do I make a distinction between the sound of this stone saw and the Buddha's voice? In what way are they different? I don't want this, it shouldn't, I don't like it doesn't inspire, this isn't enjoyable. But actually, it's ungraspable. The mind keeps grasping it and it's happening out there. I'm here, I'm meditating, it's out there, I want to get away from it, that kind of thing. Stop that, here it is, here we are. Now what actually is happening? Well, there's irritation, there's agitation. Ah. Now what actually is the sound of the stone saw apart from your irritation? It's just the sound. Apart from the, you know, if it wasn't the, so if we go to actually the Dhamma itself, then what, what is the sound? And apart from the perception, it's not a stone saw, it's just the sound. Yeah, but when you hear the sound, you imagine stone saw, person, monastery, meditation retreat, all this stuff kind of cascades around it and creates this whole mass of dukkha. But actually, sound, it's not even a stone saw. It's not even irritating. It's not even anything. <laughs> Apart from these incrustations that occur around it and the projections the views, the tendencies, the clinging that can occur around that. It's actually ungraspable. When you, you come through into the heart of phenomena, what is a sound? What is a sight? What is a thought? Apart from one's favouring, apart from one's resistance, apart from one's should and shouldn't, apart from this isn't supposed to, apart from I want more of these. If that, were, if that stopped, or if that could be seen through, even if it's not stopped, at least seen through as not the thing, what is the thing? Apart from one's memory and recognition, one's interpretation, what is the thing? All we know is it arose without me wanting it to. It persists despite whatever I do. <laughs> it ceases when it will. <laughs> it's, it's essentially ungraspable. So what's the difference between the sound of silence and the sound that they, when they chuck a brick in a cement mixer? 
and it's going up into the day. What's the difference? No difference. In what really counts, there's no, there's, in right view, there's no difference. They're equally ungraspable, equally empty, equally selfless, equally. But then, of course, you know, the, all the stuff that kicks in on that is highly graspable, highly sticky, highly tacky. And it, you get this spin, which creates a self, which then spins further and further and further. So for, then eventually you get the idea that the self seems to be actually producing this stuff rather than, you know, I have someone who's got all these hang-ups and neurotic and full of craving and delusions and so you know, so the self, which actually is just the spin-off from this, these exper- this experience of clinging, becomes seemingly the agent of it, and then we get very much embedded in wrong view. Uh, and there's a, you know, like you've got our old friend Yana Jyoti is still kind of popping around the world looking for the right place to be, <laughs> the right thing to do. <laughs> the right place, <laughs> yeah. and if it's this place, you know, it's because of my mind. It's that place. It's because of that. You know, it's always either my mind or the world. But the sense of just being able to hold in the middle. But sometimes, in terms of dharma practice, you know, just like uh, just sitting here, you know. Sometimes I practice just just sitting somewhere with my eyes open, not looking at anything in particular, and just whatever's happening. You know, and that thinking I should be doing something or getting on with something or concentrating or not concentrating. And just recognizing those wave after wave until the waves begin to empty out, you know, the power of that. And Dhamma's phenomena become much more, they lose their, their stickiness, they lose their volitional kick. And we begin to recognize the Dhammas neither exist nor don't exist. They're kind of, they've got a uh, like a mirage-like character. So if we said, oh, you know, they completely don't exist, this would be the wrong view. And if we said they ultimately did exist, this would be wrong view. But there is a tendency for them to exist. And the intensity and the density and the dimensionality of their existence is dependently arisen. This is what we have to remember. No, this is our practice point. So even the bright, luminous consciousness is actually no different from taking, you know, leftover food to the pig farm on a rainy day. If it is, then you have wrong view. <laughs> this may seem a little um, um, stark or bold, but of course the point is that uh, it's for most people um, you need a little something to sort of, you know, get a foothold on the ungraspable or to, to build up the, the uh, quality of mind that can actually sustain awareness of phenomena. Sustain full awareness of conditioned phenomena, their rising, their ceasing, their ephemeral nature, their ungraspableness. So that grasping 
and the wrong view and the volitional thirst can fade away. Yeah, well. <coughs>